welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Troy McClung. Uh, sorry we missed a week last week, um, as I'm sure all of you are experiencing the same thing. It's been a little crazy. It's been a little hectic. A lot of uh, new ground we're plowing right now with this pandemic. Uh, so just really just got covered up with a whole bunch of things last week and was unable to get my interview out, get a podcast episode out. But uh, I'm back on track here. Um, we are sheltering in place at our farm and our technology pushes against us a little bit here, so I'm not quite sure how many more interviews I'm going to be able to do going forward until this is lifted. Uh, there's some things I'm trying to do. Um, I kind of feel like I'm trying to MacGyver things here <laughs> at the farm to be able to record interviews coming in. Our phone is not the greatest. I don't have cell service. There's all kinds of uh, limitations when it comes to that. So... Um, We'll try to do uh, podcast episodes as we can get them out. Uh, I do have some already pre-recorded, so we will be releasing those. Um, but I pray everyone's doing okay, that you're you're not letting this get to you too badly, and to keep the anxiety low, just keep on keeping on. And um, I know many of you that work all farm jobs are having some serious uh, issues with not being able to work, the loss of income, and obviously that trickles over into your farm. So... Uh, I hope that's uh, something that's going to be remedied soon for you. Um, probably do a podcast episode coming up. Um, in fact, if I can get my details together, maybe next week's where we talk about uh, the effects of uh, COVID on pastured pig uh, operations around the country. Uh, some of you guys have chimed in on some of the Facebook groups, sharing your experiences, and, and just been watching that to see what's going on. So we may have some discussion on that, and that may be a solo uh, podcast if uh, again if things can go well. I'm going to jump right into our interview so uh, we'll catch you on the backside. Well hello everybody welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. As always I'm your host Troy McClung. Uh, today we'll be interviewing uh, into the great state of Michigan. I have with me from Provision Family Farms Luke Icing. Welcome Luke. Hi there. Well, I was glad you could join me this evening and uh, have an opportunity to discuss, uh, I guess, the weather in Michigan. Have you seen spring yet, or is it still late to show up? No, we're seeing spring here. We've had uh, pretty much a melt-off. It never really froze under the snow this year anyway. Isn't that crazy? Not properly. Yeah. So it's, uh, however, it's just, it is has been wet. Um, water tables are high, rivers are high, everything's wet. Yeah. We're pretty glad we live on sand in our particular place. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You don't have to mess with red clay mud like we do. That's pretty good. Right. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Provision Family Farm. What, what do you have going on there? All right. Well, we have about 80 acres. Um, about half of that's woods. There's some uh, wetlands and, and water features on it. And I got about 30 acres of, of grass pasture here at the home farm. And we do pigs, and cattle. Uh, some chickens and sheep as well, and we uh, we really pasture our pigs. Um, they're through the growing season; they're on pasture, and they're getting almost all their diet from pasture. Yeah. So, excellent. Okay. So, um, how many uh, how many pigs are you usually running throughout the course of the year? Um, I like to say I I butcher about um, 
60 pigs a year or something for my various markets and um, I don't really sell large animals very often but I, I sell probably another 60 or 70 uh, piglets as well, as well a year yeah okay well how long have you been uh, been uh, raising animals on pasture about six years I uh, I was working um, I don't know I was working a, uh, in the trades and I had my my good old college degree that I, I wasn't making any money on anyway mm. and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and and I heard a lecture by Joel Salton that just kind of turned my life around. So, yeah, d- tell me a little bit more about that. That's always interesting. I love to hear how people uh, enter into this this area. Right. Yeah. So I grew up in farming country, in Iowa and in South Dakota, uh, where farms are very very large, and the people in our in circles and in, in our church had you know enormous farms, half million dollar tractors, and so forth. And it didn't look like anything a person could afford to get into. And it didn't look very interesting to me either because I, I don't want to drive circles all day. Yeah. And so I never really considered it as a, as a career option. And uh, anyway, I was driving along one day, you know, delivering some parts for uh, HVAC. And I hear this lecture from Joel Salatin. He talks about direct market farming and being able to be home, you know, with your family and work from home and and I was like, wow, I had that epiphany. I said, this is what I want to do with my life. So I went home and I ordered his book, You Can Farm. It was a good choice. I read it, you know, through in a sitting. Then ordered probably a couple hundred more books in the next year um, on all kinds of topics. And I took a year. My parents had four acres. And I tried it out there. And we just started raising animals. And we already had, they already had a few at that point. But we never thought it was, could be a moneymaker until I learned about really direct market farming. So we tried it out for a year, my wife and I, and then we moved over to here where land is pretty affordable and we're still within an hour of Grand Rapids, which is our marketing base. And we bought 80 acres, my parents and I together. All right. Well, that's excellent. So the, um, so the, the partnership with your parents and, and then and you all were, allowed you to have that entry point into this, into this property, it sounds like. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think there's any way I would have been able to get anything like this. So, so now are you doing that full time? Is that your exclusive income? Do you have uh, is is there alternate income with your wife, or how does that work out? Yeah, that's a great question. We have um, my wife is home with the kids, mm-hmm. of which we have our, our fifth on the way right now. Oh wow, excellent! And we, um, you know, my father's working, um, and that helps really pay the mortgage, and then lets me farm for with a lot less uh, to worry about. So I'm, I'm supported in that way. Um, and I farm full-time, except in the winter. I pick up a lot of work, sometimes the whole winter, but often just parts of it. And I still take odd jobs here and there in the summer as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it always helps to have that extra fallback when you need it. Yeah. Well, well, great. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's always a question that seems to be the, the biggest hurdle that we hear about is uh, the entry point in, in land. And how to acquire land, or, or you know, when it comes to that economic barrier of, of buying, you know, how about leasing? How about partnerships? Those type of things. That sounds like a, a good acquisition there of that eighty acres. Yeah, we're glad, and it's. Um, I think it's the biggest challenge for everyone is how are we going to pay the bills doing this? As we, it's it's something some people want to talk about, but a lot of people don't want to talk about. And I think a lot of people in this business, you know, are really able to make mortgage payments and. and you know, make a, a good living on it yet. So, hmm. but we're at where we're at and um, we're loving it. And every year we get, I think, more profitable and smarter. So, 
Yeah. So let me ask you this. It is, it's a little off, little off the rabbit trail that I tend to go down. So in, in your experience now, so <clears throat> voice is cracking. You did this, you're six years in, so you've been a full-time farmer for the last six years? For, uh, for summers, at least, yes. Yeah, okay. So looking at that and and saying, okay, when I, when I got into this, you know, there was this, um, you know, maybe romantic's not the right word, but this romantic element of being mm-hmm. a full-time farmer, looking at that, now that it's become um, the job, has drudgery crept in? Do you, is there anything that's taken away from that initial uh, you know, romance period of, of being a full-time farmer? We have romance in our lives for a reason. It would be pretty boring without it, whether it's in work in relationships um so I, I have no problem using the word romance to describe what happens when we get started yeah and uh certainly i think as as a marriage you know progresses to six years you you tend to uh have a comfortable relationship that is a little less maybe a little less you know exciting and can't sleep at night but has a lot of meaning to it so i don't think farming has really lost a whole lot for me it's gained a lot of depth in uh at least in production um if there's a part of farming that that i'm getting tired of it's uh it seems like every year we have to reinvent our marketing. Hmm. You know, it is, it's hard to find good markets and it's hard to keep them. Interesting. All right. Well, let's, uh, I want to, I want to stick a pin in that cause I want to come back to that. So I'm actually going to put that in my notes here. Um, but I want to I learn a little bit more about your farm. Um, what, um, you, you talked about being uh, polyculture. So you've got multiple, um, mm-hmm. multiple protein sources there. Uh, if you don't mind hit that mm-hmm. list again, what, what are you guys raising and selling? Right. So pigs is the biggest, um, but cattle is right behind it. And then there's a, a fair bit of chicken and a little bit of sheep in there and fall turkeys, Thanksgiving turkeys. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you how we do it. Um, we're pretty uh, pretty into rotational grazing. I do one-day moves um, through the growing season for the most part. Sometimes it can creep up to two or three days um, when things get dormant in the fall mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I have some reason to have a few animals sort of by themselves, so I have less labor and just not moving as often. But as a whole, we're really uh, committed to moving the animals. And um, speaking of which, I would just encourage anyone who's listening to think about uh, to take a look at a free episode or issue of Stockman Grass Farmer. Yeah. Um, maybe only about a quarter of the articles or less uh, really deal with pastured pigs. But ultimately, we're not really in the pig business. You know, we're in the grass business. Yeah. We're in the pasture business. And so uh, just learning how to manage that is a big deal. So we really push hard to have as few different herds as possible. And uh, so we, we run pigs together with cattle and sheep. Um, and sometimes layers can be running in that mix as well. Hmm. And uh, we've never had any issues with sort of them not getting along or anything. So the polyculture works really nicely there. And it just makes moving a lot easier. I can use maybe, you know, two wires, two electric wires, roll them out and move the whole herd at once yeah, and water them all at once. So, so when you got started with that, did, did you know you wanted to be polyculture immediately? And did you start with, with a little bit of each or did you, did you start with a certain species and move up? Yeah. So we started with five pigs and we threw them in the woods because I figured pigs belonged in the woods. There you go. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we had our cattle and sheep on pasture together, which has always been nice for us. Um, it's really, uh, Keeping other animals with the sheep has prevented us from needing to get um, any kind of guardian animals because uh, most of the predators around here don't want to tangle with cattle and certainly not with pigs. Yeah, yeah. So, All right. Um, but no, I didn't know any better. I put the pigs in the woods, and since then I've, I've gotten an idea of, of how that can be pretty destructive to the woods if you leave pigs in there full time and you don't rotate them very much, which is easy to do in the woods because it's hard to run 
break fences and so forth. Right, yeah. Um, so we still use the woods in our rotation, especially in the hot parts of the summer, but uh, the bulk of their diet comes from uh, grass pasture. All right, excellent. What, uh, do you gravitate toward a specific breed with your pigs, or have you found success in certain areas there? Yeah, so we started out really uh, looking into the large black and getting some animals from that, and then since then we've mixed in well, probably seven or eight different um, heritage breeds. Um, we have a, a really unusual um, sort of herd and breeding management system, and, uh, and I don't think it's for everyone, but I am going to share it with you. We run one herd of pigs through the whole growing season. And we have the boar, we have the sows, we have the young ones. And if we have an animal that, that barrels, it tends to make a nest and go off and barrel. And then we just drop it out of the rotation and we leave it in that field. And I'll run, I'll run some feed to it directly mm. um, and just kind of check on it. And it'll, it'll be okay. Or sometimes we'll, we'll pull it off and kind of herd it off to a barn where we, where we just um, let it feral you know, with some other mothers there. But we're more or less running one herd through the whole year. And uh, to make it even more complicated, we don't actually cut our boars. We're one of them. Hmm. And so I don't have direct control over exactly who's breeding or when they're breeding. Interesting. So, um, okay, wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So, it's weird. Yeah, so as you're moving your herd along, you're, um, you've got um, – like I said, your boars intermixed, you've got your you know, sows, any gilts that are new into that area, I guess, and then as... Uh, yep, feeders and so forth. Yeah, so as the litters are... All right. But so uh, when one farrows, you're, you're kind of let either rotating it out into a shelter or you're just leaving it behind in that pasture so it can uh, nurse and kind of stay on its own. Yeah, we'll drag a truck topper over there maybe to make mm-hmm. a little house for it sometimes and, uh, and run some feed to it. And then when the piglets are really old enough that they're starting to go everywhere, we'll try to slip it back in the rotation. Yeah. Okay. So with that, uh, with your, your boars remaining intact and, and having them in, in general population there, how does that, how does that run into as far as, uh, too many farrowings and, and how do you deal with your, your coldest season there? Right. So they farrow as often as they're able. And we just sort of, um, we really kind of let uh, breeding work in our favor. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they farrow too young and they farrow, you know, three or four piglets, then we're not going to keep that animal. Um, so hopefully over time, and we have seen a lot of improvements, we're going to have animals that whose bodies kind of wait to cycle until they're ready. Mm. And then they, uh, <clears throat> they cycle when they're ready. And, uh, you know, if, if an animal looks like it's not doing its job or isn't healthy, um, we, we just cull it and uh, tends to, you know, go off to the butcher. And so that's kind of our, our management strategy is just a lot of culling yeah. to kind of pull where we want it to. And we do uh, introduce a new boar every once in a while to see if we can uh, tug the gene pool a little bit one way or the other. He doesn't breed everything, but he tends to get um, breeding rights on the larger sows. Or we'll hold one boar back, you know, and that I would normally send him to the butcher. He's already pretty good size, but I'll hold him back because I like the way he looks and the way he acts and he fits my needs. And so I hold him back, let him get even bigger, and he breeds the sows. But the gilts and the smaller sows are getting bred by whoever can catch them first. Yeah, okay. So you're saying you don't, uh, just make sure I'm clear, you're, you're not castrating any of your boars, even the ones that you're just growing out as feeders, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. We. Uh, it's a big debate. You, I bet you've covered it a few times, but we just <laughs> we don't have boar taint issues. Yeah, um, you, yeah we have actually have my homework. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, um, and if, if, you, if you look at, I think, Sugar Mountain's website, he talks about what makes it happen. Um, and it, it, being on pasture uh, more or less negates it. 
because uh, they're not eating their own poop and they're, they're getting a lot of fiber in their system. And so we just, you know, we sell, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars of pork a year without any com- of, of boar pork without any complaints. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, yeah, and we've yet to have a topic specifically about taint. You mentioned uh, Walt Jeffries. I'd I'd love to have him on. I've, I've asked him a couple times. I'm just trying to get the schedule nailed down. But uh, that would be a very good uh, discussion um, because there is there's there's a lot of debate about that whether it can be bred out and, and whether um, we're wasting our time castrating. So that. That's for a whole other discussion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would add to that that um, the breed does make a difference with that. Mm. And and my theory is um, a lot of it is a, it's pretty masculine associated. And we've bred some pretty lean pigs that I, I think are much more prone to it in commercial lines um, because in um, some ways they're, they're hyper-masculine because they have to grow really fast. Mm. And, and I think that's a, a real challenge with that. But, yeah, definitely breed makes a difference. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. So um, – you answered the other question about uh, the boar, so that takes care of, care of that situation. Um, when you're when you're rotating in a new boar, do you have a specific area that you go to to get uh, get some new genetics, or are you just just kind of looking around, let's see what's available? I'm looking at my needs to say uh, what do I want more of in my pigs. So, uh, like three years ago, I realized my pigs were coming in too lean, and it turned out to be um, kind of a feed problem. But it was um, I thought it was a genetics problem just from pasturing them and. Certainly in the cattle business, we're always like hunting down the fattest animals we can get for grass-fed beef because just getting fat into those steaks is a challenge. So I thought, I need a fattier animal. So I went to a, a lard pig. I got some mangalitsa, and, and I, I put that in the herd to see what it would do. And sure enough, it added some fat, but I also lost some of the body shape I wanted. They tend, they shortened up a bunch, mm. you know. And so I after after a year, I kind of pulled them out and, and tried something else. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Did you see? I assume adding the mangalitsa, you you saw some uh, uh, longer grow out times too. I would assume. Yeah that that was a, a you know the large black already is a, a slower growing pig, but the the mangalitsa was slower yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you, you talked about your rotational process a little bit. I assume uh, with uh, with moving through these pastures and keeping keeping your polyculture together. Um, you know, you're using electric fence. Uh, are, are you are you setting up for the cattle and the, the pigs can handle that? Uh, you know, what's your fence construction like? Right. So our perimeter fence is woven, um, and we find that uh, keeps pigs in if you're really moving fast, um, and if if there's lots of food to get. But it's not always um, 100% reliable if there's a reason for them to not be happy. And so sometimes we'll uh, we'll go around and we'll put temporary posts in. And put a hot wire at you know eight inches off the ground as well, right as we're about to use a paddock. So that that's kind of situational. Depends on how the pigs have been acting because it is a lot of extra work. Yeah, yeah. Um, we tried putting permanent hot wire inside our woven fence, and it just it's just too much maintenance. Not only does the grass grow over it, but the pigs may mound dirt against it, and who knows what. And we just couldn't keep our fence system hot enough with ground um, with wires right in front of that woven, especially if a stick pushes up against it and it hits the woven, it's just grounded out right away. Yeah. You know, not like high tensile. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we'll put a hot wire on the inside of the woven quite often, and then we'll use um, usually two strands of wire to uh, to keep the whole herd from moving to the next spot. And the piglets, they will be, they'll be wherever they want to be. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that doesn't really bother me. So. All right. Excellent. So that, uh, as far as um, infrastructure for your pastures, when it comes to uh, electricity and your water, how are you handling there? Are you are you plumbed? Do you have rain catchment? How are you carrying water? What what's right? Your... Yeah. So the um, the electricity is. I, I do run a hot wire along the top of my woven fence on the perimeter, 
Um, and I have some interior woven fences, and, and if I could go back, I would, wouldn't have put those in. I would have just put a lot less paddocks in because a lot of my paddocks are about three or four acres, and mm. I wish they were bigger, and I just use electric wires more. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I run a hot wire along the top, and that gives me access to power basically anywhere. Um, my uh, I, I got these um, – well, my fencer – I, I'll put a plug in for that. If you go to Ken Cove and get a fencer, mm-hmm. you can get the Ken Cove brand fencer with a remote control that turns the fence off. <laughs> that is a toy. It was a $106 remote, and it is worth it. Yeah, exactly. Because so, you're always anyway, you're always as furthest yeah. away from the plug as you can be, and realize I got to turn this on or turn it off to do some testing. <laughs> or, or you're just gonna get bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you got to move something, or it got buried, or pushed over, or whatever. That's a nice tool. Yeah. Anyway, that's um, that's our electric situation. It's just having hot wire on the top, so we can kind of feed that. And the the wind out rolls we use um, come with a sort of a second plastic, all plastic handle, and it just works really sharp. Um, we got them also from Ken Cove, the three to one geared reels. And mm-hmm. you can hook the um, you have one handle that has metal running through it that you can hook onto the hot wire on top. And then you have a all plastic handle you can hook onto the woven fence at any height, and then you pull it sideways from there. So you can you can kind of set your height anywhere and still pull your your heat off the top of the fence. Hmm, excellent. Um, and then uh, the water we run one inch poly um, irrigation, the cheap stuff, yellow straight, and then uh, along uh, a number of our interior fence lines, and then we just cut in these taps with a brass spigot on them every hundred feet or so. Uh, maybe every third fence post or however we measure it. And we run them above ground, and then we just hook up a hose to that system and, you know, and just pressure it. And then we have water anywhere. And if I come to a place where I need water, I don't have it, I can just cut another tee, and I got a bucket full of parts. I can cut a tee, and it's about 8 bucks for a tee plus a, a valve, you know, plus a couple of crimp rings or uh, pipe clamps. So I can cut a tee in anywhere and just add a new valve. And <clears throat> then we just drain it out in the winter. Um, then I combine that with a, uh, maybe about a, um, I take a plastic, um, food drum and just cut it off. So I got a, a pretty sturdy piece of plastic and I put a float valve on that and a, a, maybe a 25 foot piece of really nice quality hose. That's very flexible and I can hook that up and then I'll, I'll just hook that up and that'll, that'll water 20 cattle yeah. um, in just 15 gallons, as long as it's got a float valve and it's always full. Yeah. Excellent. If that gets knocked over, screwed up somehow, you'll be there for an hour trying to water them while they fight to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but as long as you keep the water there, they're happy. And then the pigs will use that too. Um, and I can just, as I move the fence, you know, I just dump out the water and move it to the next spot. Right. Very good. And then I do run, I do a little, little leak run sometimes from that. Um, or I'll take a hose and, and put it on a little valve at the end and put it on trickle to make a little wobble for the pigs in, uh, in every stop more or less in the, in the summer. Yeah. Do you do you find in that situation are you are you coming back and having to overseed after you've moved, or are you just moving them fast enough that you're not getting that much destruction? Uh, you know, we really have to think of destruction. Um, we want to avoid it in most cases, but it, it's it's also a tool. So if I'm going to destroy something, I always find the spot I want to destroy. Mm-hmm. So if I come in there with supplemental feed, and in the summer I might be some cases I'm just throwing it right on the ground because um, it's mixed up and then maybe it's a little wet. Um, I'll find a, a patch of weeds or a place where the soil looks sandy, you know, and there's nothing growing some moss, and I'll hit that. And so I tend to put the wallows also in places that I think could help. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes if, if, I, if I have the time, I'll come back and throw some, some seed on it. Um, often the seed I throw is um, something that's going to grow real fast, like 
like buckwheat, which you can graze in like 20 or 30 days after mm. you plant. Yeah. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about feed. You had mentioned something uh, earlier about um, really being raised on pasture. Your pigs really are, are focusing primarily on pasture. So is there supplemental feed in the uh, peak months? Or are you are you totally cutting that out? Right. So we um, we have a, a sort of year-round bit of feed we have to use. And I think I, I could do away with supplemental feed. But right now we pick up uh, spent brewing grains from hmm. some a couple breweries every week. And that comes year-round, and, and I'm not going to waste it. So I do feed that through the whole summer. And it's, it's a protein and fiber product. So you, you have to – that was the reason my pigs were getting too lean was I was keeping that straight. You have to balance it with some sugar. Yeah. So I would uh, I'd give um, – I'd put a little corn with it, you know. I'd pick up maybe a barrel is 200 pounds of beer grain, and I'd put a bucket of 25 pounds of corn with that. And and bear in mind that the beer grain is about two-thirds water, so it's only 60 pounds of grain. Yeah. Um, but that was enough to sort of keep things in balance to where they wouldn't get too lean. And so we feed that through the summer, and uh, it's probably 2,500 pounds a week around the year. Um, but that, that came out, when I did the math, to about 1% of their body weight in grain. Hmm. So... Um, given that a full feed is, you know, three to four pounds, where you know it's probably maybe thirty percent of their diet is coming in grain. The other seventy percent is coming in pasture through the growing season. That's great. So, are you seeing that? So, obviously, you've already kind of addressed that. Uh, you've taken on the issues with being too lean. Uh, are you seeing good finish weights when you're ready to go? Yeah, it, it, it depends how long you grow them. Mm-hmm. But uh, we uh, we like to see finish weights, you know, like anyone else, one eighty and up. And, uh, I think, uh, I think I've been mostly pretty happy with my finish weights. The boys definitely uh, finish out pretty well. Yeah. The girls, um, often litter. I, I tend to let them litter once and then I butcher them, um, unless they really did a good job. So, but even then they can, they can be a little behind. Yeah. Okay. Well, but I get the litter. So I consider that kind of a win. Yeah. Being able to sort of get a litter and then still have the meat. Um, we, we haven't seen a, a lowering in quality in product quality um, at really any age in our pigs. Hmm. So, Very good. Um, it's not consistent, so if you're trying to sell to a restaurant, you know, you can have some issues there. You can have pork chops from an old sow that are as big as a plate. Right, yeah. But um, the, the product, the, the, there's no real quality issues with older animals. All right. Good. Well, let's uh, let's segue into uh, your your selling and your, your, your marketing and, and retail situation there. So it sounds to me like, um, uh, do you do individual cuts? Do you do holes and halves? Do you do wholesale to markets and stores? How, what's the gamut of, of operation there? Uh, here in Michigan, you know, we are in a lot better shape than most places. Um, I have within an hour and a half, I think I have maybe four USDA packers to choose from. Wow. So, um, and none of them are closer than an hour, but that's okay. Um, so I, I've been able to do that, um, and there's, there's smoking available as well, USDA smoking. So basically, um, new, all of our meat is USDA processed. Excellent. <clears throat> it doesn't mean I, I still wouldn't be happy to use a state butcher, you know, if the prime active that came through and use someone who's only 15 minutes away, maybe, but uh, and someone I could work with at a smaller scale. But I'm I'm grateful for that resource. So everything is USDA. We have a 20 foot um, walk-in freezer on site. Um, that's been a great asset for us. I think in our first year already, we had like seven freezers running, and I realized this wasn't going to go. So I bought an old reefer truck, and I I was able to sell the truck for almost as much without the box after (laughs) I took it off. Yeah, that's great. 
So that's something to, and that's seriously something to think about because it's it's a good outdoor it's already outdoor ready the yeah. box. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and then I I, I paid a, a couple thousand a few thousand into getting it um, set up with electricity instead of diesel, but it's just been a great resource for us. <clears throat> so we we've got a lot of inventory and then we sell. Um, we we started out selling at farmers markets, which is I think where nearly everyone starts out. And uh, a lot of people I think find out that that's it's not a great setup because you you have to spend a lot of time there. Hmm. And, um, you know, sales go up and down per market and for time of year. So we did, we don't love farmer's markets. Um, sometimes we still go, go back to them for some time here or there trying to attract new customers. Yeah. But we started out with the farmer's markets. Um, then we started a, a home delivery program, which is still a big deal for us or an important part of our system where we deliver first every two weeks. Now it's every month. We just make a, we have people order online at our website and then we, uh, they order specific cuts, fill up a, a shopping cart, click pay, use a credit card, and then we deliver it to their door um, just, you know, on, on the first Wednesday of every month. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and that's, um, that's attracted sort of uh, um, people who are, are doing purchase sizes of, of almost $100 per order because they're feeding their family, and it's just once a month. And, and so that's been a good system. We hoped it would grow, but it, it hasn't grown a lot, so – do you incorporate a delivery fee into that, or is that just covered? Is there a minimum? Yeah, there's order? a $10 delivery fee in there, um, and that doesn't really cover all our time, but it definitely covers our vehicle and gas costs per stop. So if we have, say, eight stops in a day, you know, then you make 80 bucks, covers your gas and vehicle costs, and then you might deliver $800 worth of product in the same amount of time. Yeah. Um, which, now, which isn't bad. Now, so. are, you, are you delivering into Grand Rapids, so you, that, that hour mm-hmm. drive? Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I, I am there every week anyway to pick up the spent brewing grains and to deliver to uh, the one restaurant that buys every week from me as well. Okay. So we have a restaurant that buys a fair bit of pork from us, at least by our standards. Um, and uh, moreover, they buy a, they'll buy almost any cut because they turn it into pulled pork. So that's been uh, really nice. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, is working with that restaurant, have you discovered uh, you know, how – how are you be able able to meet their need? Are you uh, providing uh, at a certain time, a certain amount, frozen, fresh, you know, all those type of things? How does that come into play? Yeah, we handle really only frozen meat in terms of our red meats. Um, that's the way the packers want to give it to us mm-hmm. uh, for health reasons for sure. the most part. And that's not a that's not a problem for any of our consumers. Um, I wish they had a like a freezer on site. They would just buy a bunch, but they insist uh, that they it goes in the fridge. And so I deliver every week. Mm. Um, it's a pizza place, and they make pulled pork pizzas, and uh, they buy bacon and lunch meat as well for the pizzas, like a sliced ham. And so that uses up just about the whole animal except for the pork chops and the trim. Yeah, what a great what a so, great opportunity, yeah. Um, that's been a good fit. And even uh, the guy's been really nice. If I if I come short, he has some other places he buys from that are a little, little less uh, maybe natural or good tasting but still work. And so he just kind of covers elsewhere, and when I have more, I come back to him. And then we – We've worked with a bunch of different um, cooperatives of various kinds, and we do have a sort of a food hub we work with right now where we we sell basically to some CSAs, um, and uh, we like those too. They're not a lot of time commitment, some grocery stores, but it's always piecing together, and it's, it's always kind of a moving target, I think, um, getting enough market for our product. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit. You had mentioned earlier that you have um, you know, marketing issues where you feel that each year you're kind of resetting or having to start all over because there's a lot of turnover in your in your audience. Um, uh, unpack that a little bit. What's going on there? Right. So uh, uh, without too much of a wine fest, I guess <laughs> here in, uh, here in uh, farming country, um, there's not a lot of mystique around what we do. Hmm. 
you know, if for nearly anyone who lives within half an hour of me says, oh, yeah, my, you know, my grandparents had a farm. I've worked in a farm. I've been around the farm. And uh, and up and down the road, you can get eggs for 99 cents a dozen from people who, you know, clearly aren't doing math, but have a have a flock of chicks in the backyard. Right. <laughs> and so uh, the, the price challenge is a really big deal here. Um, there are, you know, there may be some some people who you can you can get to pay um, what you might need to make money off of this. But there's a lot of people who are used to seeing store prices and and think that farming isn't very um, magical or anything. And so uh, with pork, especially the price is a real challenge. I think less so with our beef and chicken. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, I price our pork. I don't know if you talk much about that. Some people, it's kind of like a dirty little secret. Like, what's your price? Well, what's your price? You know, we price our our ground pork at at seven bucks a pound. And uh, most of our cuts are are just barely above that because we we actually have a lot of trim demand. Yeah. And um, smoked meats, obviously, are more because of the smoking cost. Sure. But, um, you know, that's about where our beef price is. Um, for a lot of customers, that's sort of hard to imagine that pork could be as expensive as um, beef. Yeah. In some ways, yeah. I think if I did the math, though, it should cost more. Right. <laughs> yeah. Smaller animal. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I, the butchering costs are so much higher. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and that's a good um, that's a good point with the the, the fallback. And, and and I guess, you know, maybe we can go down this path. I assume that, again, this is where the benefit of polyculture comes in. I assume as you're you're offering uh, beef, you're offering pork, you're offering chicken. That that there's a, a combo package. You're you may be doing um, uh, boxes, uh, protein boxes, mm-hmm. those type of things. That people tend to gravitate toward that uh, beef uh, as the the first, uh, yeah, the first choice versus the pork. Well, yeah, with it's it really depends on your customer group, mm-hmm. um, and we our different customer segments have buy things very differently. Um, so for us. Uh, people just plain like eating breakfast sausage and frankly, so do I. So that that's really a big seller for us to our residential customers. Very good. Um, and it makes it easy. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think we, we tried a lot of things, different deliveries, different drop-offs and a lot of them uh, people are excited about. And, uh, and then I think over time, as far as I can tell, you know, we, we do follow up questionnaires and, and dialogue with people and the people tend to just uh, revert to the habit of just kind of, well, I swung by Walmart and I grabbed a pack of pork chops for dinner and so I don't need to order from you. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of, it, it happens. There's a, there's a slide there. You know, that's interesting. And that's, and, hmm. And this is where, yeah, obviously the, the, the question, when we have these discussions about uh, the Walmart factor there, uh, you know, the apples to apples comparison, or the lack of that being an apples to apples comparison, that uh, pasture raised pork compared to a, a Walmart product. Um, you're looking for the customer that recognizes that difference, and maybe that's the the ideal customer you want. And know that you're going to have some attrition with customers that say, "Hey, your your seven dollar pork chop is the same as the ninety nine cent pork chop I bought at Walmart." And that's the- right, yeah. And but I think it is an extra challenge with pork in that we you know we all have a sort of a a, a price point where we go to the store and say, "Well, I'm going to buy organic." Well, it's twice as much. That's too much. Fifty percent more I would have paid, but twice as much is too much. You know, everyone has a price point. And and with pork, it's just kind of mind-boggling to see products for sale at, at less than we pay for processing. Mm, yeah, you know that that's a big hurdle to ask customers to cross that. I, I do understand that. Um, but yeah, people who appreciate the the, the quality of it, um, a lot of our best customers come from the Weston A. Price Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm-mm, no, but it's it's a nutrition group that has chapters all over the country and a number around the world, and they they understand the, the nutritional benefits of 
um, sort of pastured and grass-fed animals, and they they work hard to provide um, lists of those to their um, to the people who are members of their group. And so I would just uh, encourage people to look up WAPF online, find a local chapter, you know, and then talk to the chapter leader and say, hey, look, I'm providing this product. Can I get on your list? And they're going to ask you some some really pointed questions. They they do know their stuff, and about you know whether it's genetically modified. They do have um, kind of a vendetta against soy. So they may ask you if if they can get something that has doesn't have soy in the feed, oh, but yeah. um, they tend to have really good customers that show up with checkbooks and coolers and are, are buying, you know, to feed themselves, not just as as a side thing. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we'll have to so, have to look into. So that's that. a resource to check out. But yeah, committing the higher price, getting consistency from customers, and 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 keeping them. Um, yeah, I think these are challenges, and and the Walmart factor is big. Perhaps there's uh, some room for, um, you know, hopefully in the next decade, some uh, consolidation in the pork movement in terms of um, how we use our terms and um, how we respect each other and uh, exactly some some ideas. It's kind of a, a wild west out there. Everyone's doing their own thing, and right. I certainly am doing my own thing. Um, but if you compare that, say, with the grass-fed industry, we have a pretty good idea of what a grass-fed animal is or isn't. And uh, correspondingly, if you go to the store and say, I, I, I want a grass-fed steak – you're going to pay a price that I think most of us farmers would be uh, pretty happy to get for our product. You mm-hmm. know, it's not like a huge price gap between what the stores have and what we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to see that with pork. I mean, you go to the store and you see pork and it says naturally raised pork. And, and you know that means nothing. I mean, not even <laughs> nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, if they say cage-free chickens, it means a very, very tiny thing. But natural pork means nothing. Right. And um, And so – yeah, I think if we could get some some words and get some ideas of what they might mean by pastured, a certain amount of access per year, you know, a certain percentage of the diet, it'd be nice to kind of nail those things down over time as a movement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. There needs to be more uh, solidarity throughout and, and, like you say, using the proper terminology. I think I saw something pop up on social media the other day, a Walmart sign talking about their natural pork, and then their little drop-down sign was barn-raised. Um, so it was really touting the fact that they, uh, their pork is barn-raised. <laughs> right, and even barn is already sort of a nostalgic word for, for most people. Right. And there's no relation to the actual living conditions of the animals. Yeah, yeah. So uh, going back real quick to your customer base, are you discovering, because I just I heard a discussion about this just the other day, um, uh, this trend of people are cooking less. So are you finding, are you getting some feedback from customers that say, oh, wow, yeah, our freezer's still full from the last time we ordered. We just haven't used uh, uh, all the product yet. Are, are you running into that much? Um, I do see people maybe ordering less often. I would imagine a national trend like that would be hard to, to trace among, you know, like 50 or 80 customers. Yeah. Um, especially because customers we have already are not really reflective of the, uh, the national average. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I think we're really going to have to find a way to meet people where they're at. Um, I don't think we can feed America through farmers' markets. People aren't going to make the trip. Um, so we're going to be looking at delivery. We're going to be looking at getting into stores. And uh, we're going to be looking at selling to more restaurants because people are just eating a lot more at restaurants. Yeah. yeah. So um, I really like what Chipotle does. Um, they're always looking for, for natural pork suppliers. And uh, and they, they're not a sit-down restaurant. You know, they're, they're a much faster-moving restaurant, and I think that's going to be the future of food. If we can get healthy food <clears throat> that fits with our crazy lifestyle in America, because unfortunately we can't change that either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think we need to brainstorm about how to 
you know, we'd like to imagine everyone would cook a really nice pork roast and sit down as a family and uh, maybe say grace and, and, and dad would be there. Um, but those are kind of too big for us, even as a big pork movement. So we're going to have to find a, how to market to uh, to the fast-paced world we live in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think um, you know, exploring these options, I mean, we see more and more pasture operations. I mean, you talked about Salatin. I mean, Salatin. Uh, you, you just here in the last year or so uh, started doing. You uh, gave up. Yeah, started, started shipping. shipping. Yeah, exactly. And it's just just embracing uh, the, you know, change is inevitable. So he embraced that change. And, and yeah, you just wonder. Um, I heard uh, I was listening to another podcast today, actually, and, and they were talking about um, the guy was talking about home deliveries into a major uh, metro area. And he said, it takes me five hours to drive around. I'm charging a delivery fee. He said, if I turn around and charge that customer the exact same delivery fee, I can and and charge it to shipping. He said I can ship it via FedEx, and I don't have to go downtown. And uh, so yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, yeah, and I thought about that too, and and I think that may be the future too. Um, I'd like to see a system though. Right now, the uh, the shipping system is uh, sort of environmentally wasteful. Right now, I think it involves a lot of throwaway ice packs for the most part, and a lot of packaging. So maybe maybe we'll see something like the Schwanee truck, you know, in the future or something where there's a, a refrigerated option that's a third party. Exactly, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I like that. Well, interesting. All right. Well, look, let's talk about the future. What um what's the next 5 years look like uh, hopefully for Provision Family Farms? What do you what do you think in the next 5 years you know, your goals would be? Well, this is a chance for me to uh, talk about one of my favorite little uh, personal topics that I'm kind of excited about for the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. And um I don't know if you've had people talk about this yet or not, but we've been doing a lot of work with silvopasture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had a little bit of discussion. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So here in Michigan, we have a lot of woods, and it's it's a it's a wet environment, and it's 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 not you know California. If if we don't sort of beat back the woods, it will eat us. Um, and so we we go in there, and we uh, we have to. I do a lot of work with the chainsaw, and to me, that's work I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so I've been taking my woods and sort of taking out. I'm going to give you a little quick run through on how, how we create silver pasture. Would that be okay? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going into the woods and we're looking and saying, well, what are the best trees? And we're finding the best trees and we're leaving them there. Um, the nice saw log and timber trees for us, it's hardwood. Um, some places might be softwood, but for us it's, it's oaks and maples and so forth. Mm-hmm. We're leaving the best trees. We're taking out the firewood trees. We're taking out the brush. Um, and then I sell the firewood trees. That's my sort of side income farm as well. But, um, we're looking to get, you know, 30 to 60% shade cover is considered silver pasture. I'd say you, you want to be in that range. Um, so you're looking to thin it out to where there's gra- uh, light hitting the ground. And once you get enough light on the ground, grass will start to grow under it. And then you have silver pasture. Then you have, you know, two crops coming up the same area or more. And so we, we've been, I've got a, a number of my paddocks I've thinned out. I've probably got about um, 10 acres of silver pasture at this point. And it, I have to say, even without much help, it, it grows, turns into grass very fast. Um, mm-hmm. The pigs do a nice job of going through there and sort of fluffing up those leaves and bringing up some soil to the surface and uh, helps germination. But we've done that. We save um, the oaks, especially because they, they drop the nuts in the fall, and that's good for the pigs. And every every year in the fall, when the acorns hit, I turn the pigs out, and uh, for two weeks they don't really want anything else. They don't want to eat anything else. They just want to get all the acorns. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and that. And then I try to, if possible, I try to schedule it so I get a butcher shortly after that for most of my animals and get them, get that taste, keep that taste in them while I get them to market and right. get rid of them before I start paying for winter feed. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're man. You're my goodness. You're you're definitely hitting a a an area that I enjoy as much as well. You know, in, in the Appalachian forest, we have um, we have a hundred acres, and I have about five acres that would actually be considered uh, pasture or, or meadow. And same thing, you go through and and eliminate um, some of the less desirables. Um, like I, I have a, a good friend that's a forester, and he he helps me plan and. And we look at, at different areas, uh, different pasture areas as we build the Siva pasture. But leaving the white oaks specifically, the uh, the red oaks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have beech, we have hickory, we have walnut. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, leaving those behind because of the protein production from that, but being able mm-hmm. to clear out. And you know, and, and one thing to, to to add to what you're saying, it's 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 really interesting. So right now in in our area, and I assume it's the same uh, through most of the Midwest and Eastern Seaboard that. White oak, uh, when it comes to timber value, is on the upside right now simply because of the barrel stave market. Craft beer, hmm. breweries, and, and uh, distilleries all using uh, the white oaks to make their barrels. So that's very specific uh, type of lumber that comes out of very specific white oak log. There's a lot of details and, that come from that. So that's a high-end market right now. So there's there's more uh, profit potential from the yield of that. So as we go through, we look at the white oak and say, okay, here's here's a marketable white oak right beside a, a large double trunk that has no timber value mm-hmm. to it whatsoever. But we're going to cut down the marketable one and sell it and then mm-hmm. leave that double trunk because, as you know, as you clear out those competing trees, that canopy is going to increase 40, 50, 60, maybe even 80 percent when its mm-hmm. com- competitor is gone. And it, it has no um, it has no uh, timber value to it. But, my goodness, as far as a, a protein production, a double trunk is going yeah. to just throw even more acorns. So, yeah, oaks are, are really prolific at just branching out wide if given the sunshine. And they, they – as they do that, they become far more prolific at dropping nuts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the yield is just phenomenal. There's, I have one, the gnarliest looking red oak you could ever imagine. I mean, it looks like something from Sleepy Hollow, you know, from an old uh, uh, wives' mm-hmm. tale or something. Uh, but that's, it's like walking on marbles in the fall because there's just so much mass that comes from that. And, uh, yeah, same with my pigs. They just, they want to hang out under that tree for days, just vacuuming those uh, those acorns yep. up. Yeah, yeah and I, we have some apples, too, and those are also just really, mm. you can't pick them all. Those are great. Yeah, so. that's great. That's one thing I don't have. I don't have any fruit production like that. That's incredible. Well, great. Well, so, so, yeah, so that's in civil pasture there, and uh, just um, it's something for people to look at. And, um, you know, I think if you were if you were looking at this seriously um, and you did the math, you'd probably decide if you have a lot of brush, it's probably actually better to hire someone to come in with a big chopper mm-hmm. and just take it down. I did, I did the math and looked at it and figured that was probably the way to do it. Um, but I, I don't mind. I enjoy getting out there with a chainsaw. Yeah, I'm the same so way. I've done a lot of that myself. Yeah, um, I've piled it up into big piles, and I kind of just uh, let it rot. Um, the best resource I found on that is a book called uh, Silvo Pasture, which came out of uh, some guys from the University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. Um, they're not very fond of pigs. They don't like pigs in the woods, but they have a lot of good information in there. So um, if you're just looking to learn a little more about that, take a look at that. Excellent. All right. Um, and then I wanted to share a little uh, story, too, about um, – using um or talking about pigs and how we um we use them um with cover crops we 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 do a fair bit with cover crops as well okay so if there's an area that um that the pigs have rooted up too much and rooting is a whole topic unto itself and i'm always trying to reduce how much rooting there is you know kind of breaks my heart if they root up too much but if there's an area that that they've rooted up a lot or if i've got a pasture that i know is just um has been weak and every year i kind of find my weakest pasture and target it 
what we'll do is we'll uh, <clears throat> we'll winter the cattle there, and we'll drop a hay bale in a different spot every mm. every time we bring one out there. Yeah, and just let them graze it out. It's, it's called bale grazing. So I had this piece of ground that was last or two years ago that was um, below sand. I tried to grow things I think three times there. I tried to plant a little cover crop, and nothing came up more than six inches. So I went in there, I thinned out all the brush, I got the trees to what I would call silvopasture, and then the more open areas were okay. And then I, I wintered the cattle there, and I got about 80% of the ground covered with, with junk hay and manure. And then I took cattle out, started rotating them, you know, in April. And then the pigs, I know if you put them out in April, they're going to start rooting before they graze because the ground is just soft and irresistible. Yeah, exactly. And so I put the pigs in where the cattle had been, and they stayed there for another month. And sure enough, they flipped over all those bales looking for the worms underneath them, all the, the junk hay, and uh, and just added their own manure to the mess and had a general good time. And then by May, things had, had dried up a little bit, and I was able to take them out and start grazing with the cattle. And so uh, then I took that spot, and I, I came in, and I, I I dissed it a couple times, and then I planted a cover crop. Um, in most places, I think in America, you could rent a no-till drill from the, the county, the NRCS office. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's true in most places in America. And you rent it for just uh, just unbelievably cheap prices. You know, it's like, oh, 60 bucks for three days. You can't, you can't own equipment for that. Yeah. And so we, we, I rent that a couple times a year usually, uh, once in the spring and then once in the early summer. <clears throat> and uh, maybe once again in late summer. But I rented that and I planted a mix of cover crops and uh, a whole bunch of stuff and i let it grow the whole summer and then in the fall i came back and i, I let the animals graze through it um, a lot of juicy stuff in there so i often use that for grazing pigs especially <clears throat> um you know yeah and uh wouldn't you believe it that place grew stuff that was uh over knee high and it, you know <laughs> yeah. in one year yeah what so a... i was just really happy with how that worked out what a, yeah what a great natural way to amend soil i mean you look at the inputs there it, it that's the, the function stacking of permaculture they're really coming to coming to light with uh, you're feeding out that hay anyway and just using the animal's natural uh, instincts and natural um, uh, processes to uh, to do that that's that's phenomenal and then in my regular pastures as well if if a place seems a bit rooted up i'll run a disc over it maybe once one pasture per year in rotation you know one paddock and I'll, I'll plant. And, I'm, and Sudex has just been a great crop for me. A Sudan grass sorghum mm-hmm. hybrid. <clears throat> a lot of sugar. And you can graze it um, three or four times in a year. Um, and it's it's just been a great product. It's, it's sort of like the base crop that I add other t- crops to. Yeah. Right. So, and and if, you, if you're into cover crops and you want to play around with them, um, you know, the guy to learn about them from is probably Gabe Brown. Um, do a little research on that for people. And mm-hmm. if you want to order some, I have to tell you there's a cool website I found. Um that has a calculator where you can kind of put in where you live and what you want to do with the crop and yeah. what time of year you're planting it. Um, it's called green cover seed and it's, they have a smart mix calculator. They, and boy, that is a fun little toy. You, you plug in those things and it spits out a list of recommendations, you know, like in, in all like this, there's a category for legumes and a category for, uh, you know, grasses and a category for, for broadleafs and, you know, warm and cold season grasses and, it says, you know, the top 10 in each category or whatever. And you can kind of say, well, I want to add this. I want this. And there's no limit. You can add 50 different species in the same mix. And then they'll bag it and sell it to you. And uh, I, I thought the prices were actually quite reasonable. You know, I, I had a 40-species mix. And uh, it showed up at my door, and it was like, I don't know, 200 bucks for, you know, 200 pounds or something. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was a pretty good deal. Yeah, excellent. Oh, cool. Yeah, I have to check that out as well. 
All right. Well, um, Luke, as we're kind of drawing to the close here, um, I always uh, want to close out with a with a question I ask. Uh, what is your best experience or favorite part about raising pigs on pasture? You know, there, there's uh, just one answer to that, and it's just going out there every day and moving animals. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you got to get it in your mindset if, if you're really a grass farmer that your job basically is to move animals. And uh, every day I go out and I move animals. Every day I go out and make a whole bunch of animals really happy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every day I go out there, I, I pull that gate open, pull the wire down, and they're all waiting for me because they see me coming and they know what time of day it is. Right. And they come through that gate and they just rush through and they go, oh, boy, oh, boy, grass, more grass. And this is exactly what they got yesterday, but they're so excited for it. And they're out there running around and they take a bite and take a few more steps and take another bite and – and I just love watching uh, the pleasure they get out of something that simple. And so just making animals happy every day by moving them, at least through the growing season, is really uh, the best part of farming for me. Oh, excellent. Good answer. Very good. Well, if people want to find out more about uh, Provision Family Farms, uh, where can they find you? Right. So we have a ProvisionFamilyFarms.com website. Um, then we have a, a Facebook page that will show up if you search us. And if you just kind of like keeping tabs on us, um, the Facebook page or the um, the Instagram page, which there'll be links to that in the um, at like the website and on Facebook, are sort of the way to kind of just you know see what we're up to and what we're talking about. And I try to post regularly to uh, just keep people in touch with with what's happening with the family and farm. And uh, so those are good places to talk to us. And if if someone is in my area or or wants to try some of the, um, the genetics we've been raising and we've been you know doing this for um, for a while, sort of breeding or at least culling for pigs that are able to eat almost entirely pasture pigs that are very gentle and safe to be around and stuff if someone wants to uh to try out some of those pigs you know i, I do sell feeders and um mm. and larger animals so i'd be happy to talk with you about that too excellent all right well, we'll be i'll uh, be sure to post that in the show description so people can check that out get those links there well look i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me this evening and uh, i hope you have a uh, good rest of your week Thank you for what you're doing um, for the, the pastured pork world. And uh, enjoy your pigs. All right. All right. Take care, man. I want to thank Luke for coming on the uh, podcast there and enjoy talking with him. Uh, if you want to find out more about his farm or his setup, obviously there'll be information in the show description, so you can check that out. If you have topics or uh, things you want to hear us discuss on the podcast, by all means, please go to redtoolhouse.com, click on the Pastured Pig Podcast link, and you can use that form to send your information. All right, take care, everybody. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com. <laughs>